For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. In a world where so many things fight for our attention using noise, what is the value of a quiet moment? We'll find out about the power and importance of silence next from four different angles. Wolf Boart is a world-renowned creator and performer in the realm of physical theater. Boart tells us about his new production called One Twig at a Time. The Invisible Theater presents Small Mouth Sounds. It's a play about six strangers who meet at a silent retreat, meaning they must try to communicate in new and challenging ways. Tucson poet Susan Cummins Miller reads from her collection called Making Silent Stones Sing. And meet Nate Moran, a New York mime who wants to share messages of joy and happiness with audiences of all ages. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Wolf Boart is a Tucson native who's garnered acclaim all over the world for his inventive approach to physical theater. While there's plenty of music and sound effects in his work, Boart usually tells stories without words. His new production, One Twig at a Time, will transform the stage at the Scoundrel and Scamp into an enchanted village where both the citizens and the inanimate objects have minds of their own. I asked Wolf Boart to share some of his thoughts on the value of unspoken communication. One of the reasons that I enjoy telling stories without words, without dialogue, is that you're able to tell your own story and it also asks the audience to step up a little bit and to fill in their blanks. Also, my pieces uh, at times get a bit abstract or they have a different narrative. They have their own logic, they have magic realism and they have their own logic and own way of being within the construct of the play, within the parameters of the play. That also asks the audience to to step up and, and fill in the blanks. And it's so interesting when you, for example, Letters End, my production, had three or four different uh, lines of story that you had to follow. And afterwards, the, the younger members of the audience always seem to get it before the adults because the adults are, uh, we were trained to be linear and to to think things through and to, and to um, jump ahead to plot points and all that. Whereas kids just, you know, let it, let it go in and they, they see the story uh, as it is, you know. I'm not typically a fan of the slapstick comedy of the Three Stooges. However, mm. I did see just a really funny, just three second clip of Curly Howard picking up, he's, he's, he's starving and they have an opportunity to make sandwiches. And he picks up like a French loaf that's been cut long ways and he holds it up to his face and the bread bites him on the nose. And suddenly he's locked in mortal combat with this loaf of bread before he can put anything in it. And I thought, that's such an easy gag that I would never have thought of it, you know? Mm. There's a great book called The Funny Parts, I think it's called, and it's very dry, but it's just the guy lists comedy bits from as far back as, you know, documented time. A lot of them, the mirror gag, you know, that's probably comes back to when we first had mirrors, you know, and so <laughs> yeah. it all goes back to Commedia dell'arte or whatever it goes back to. Yeah. But then he lists Chaplin or whomever, other gag writers that have used it all the way through Lucille Ball and into Friends episodes and things. 
it is a very dry read, but it's riveting because <laughs> if you're into physical comedy, because it's just lists and lists and lists of these great uh, gags, you know. The NPR host, mm. Scott Simon, who's mm. also now well known as a novelist, his dad was a comedy writer mm. and was deeply involved in Chicago stand up and everything. One of the memorable things he said about his father was that he rarely laughed out loud, but his highest accolade was, now that's funny. Yeah, yeah. That's an unfortunate curse of of, uh, phys- of comedians in general. Apparently, I let it all build up and it comes out as a, ha, huh, you know, every every so, so often, you know, it just it bubbles up. So the title of your new piece, which is a collaborative work, um, One Twig at a Time, I can think of that two ways right off the top of my head. One is a tree grows one twig at a time. But I can also think of being at the top of a tree, falling out, and that's what you're hitting as you go to the ground one twig at a time. Which would you say is more apt of a description to the storytelling that you're doing? That's nice. I'm going to use that. I haven't hadn't thought of that. Um, it's actually not necessarily a collaborative piece. I, I wrote it with uh, with four or five other actors in mind. Um, so I wrote the piece with five other actors in mind uh, about a year ago, and I've been working on it. And then we had 22 days or so, uh, which we're in the middle of now, to mount it and stage it. And so I I, um, I got their input there. Um, I started with a title. That's what I had. I had a, a setting, which is a, a village in Europe somewhere in a non-disclosed time, a non-disclosed place, just a generic village, very much inspired by Jacques Tati and Monsieur Hulot's holiday and that whole feeling of, of a small town uh, in Europe. Um, and I started with the idea of a nest the, the eclectic way that nests have these, a twig and a f- piece of fluffiness and a string and a bubble gum and maybe a ribbon and some feathers and that a community is put together by many pieces and many disparate kinds of things. And then together it makes this beautiful thing that's fragile uh, and can disappear. And when, you know, as, as we're losing things like you know, democracy um, or family members or commu- you know, sense of community, you don't know what you're missing until it's gone. But I really like the uh, the tree the tree growing metaphor. I've, I've I've thought of, but I hadn't thought of the falling out of the tree and hitting all the branches on the way down, which actually really applies to this production too. Because, like all the other pieces, this piece is quite linear to begin with, and then it goes to another dimension. When you talk about the fragility of nests, I think some of those twigs are actually load bearing, you know, Mm -hmm. and cannot be removed without risking everything. And then I also think about one day I had an author in who had written a new book about birding in Arizona, and he was a real expert. And before he came into the studio, I was standing outside and I saw this hummingbird and there was a very big spider web on a window on like the second floor. And this hummingbird kept going into the spider web. And I was concerned because, you know, based on his size, I thought he might be vulnerable. So later when the expert got here, I said, hey, this is what I witnessed, you know. And he said, oh, yeah. He goes, yeah, that's nest building material. Those spider webs are excellent nest building material. And so this guy was just trying to get as much as he could in, in one run, you know. Yeah, and then the fragility of the nest, of the of the web, you know. It's mm-hmm. fascinating. Yeah. That's my new tattoo coming up. <laughs> But I did start with a title, and I said, okay, what, where do I go? And it was now? this title? Yeah. It wasn't Sink the Bismarck or something? No. 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 
Okay. Tell us a little bit about the actors and why you chose them. What was the key thing that was important to you when selecting performers to be a part of One Twig at a Time? Because the piece is about community and uh, we had many different actors come in and I was able to just sort of pick a 17-year-old who likes to walk on her hands and a 74-year-old who likes to write letters. And uh, there's folks from many parts of, of uh, our community. And that's important to tell a story that's broad, that speaks to everyone, you know, because you can recognize yourself up there. It's also really exciting because I cast a, a 17, you know, now 19-year-old she's doing a lot of the things that I used to do, and now I'm sort of able to sit in a chair and watch, like fall into a garbage can or walk on her hands or do a dive roll. Or It's it's great. It's sort of the next generation to watch that. And I've, I realized that timing is such an interesting thing to work with actors. And, and going back to the silence concept, when you're talking about uh, physical timing on stage, it's important to try to communicate it without doing it. So I'll find myself saying, you know, um, stop, breathe, turn your head to the right, keeping your body straight. Then your body follows and exit the stage, you know, with intention going somewhere. So instead of just doing, turning my head and walking off stage, I'm saying, you know, I'm breaking it down like a dance yeah. piece. And, and, and if it's done properly, even if you don't know what you're doing and you're doing it like a mime, like mime in, in a sense, theoretically, the comedy will be there. Wolf, Board and Company present One Twig at a Time from April 13th through the 30th at the Scoundrel and Scamp Theater. Six strangers, each with their own reason to escape from their established lives, meet at a silent retreat. That's the basic premise behind Small Mouth Sounds by playwright Bess Wall, a compassionate journey into dealing with the best and worst that life has to offer without words to use as barriers, instruments, or weapons. Next, I'm joined by director Susan Clausen and actors Toe Renee Wolf and Dennis Tamblin to tell us more, and I began by asking them each to describe the play using one sentence apiece. An unlikely group of people come to a silent retreat and rely upon the silence to speak volumes. A journey of epic proportions that begins in the outer and culminates in the inner. The group experiences change in a way that they did not expect even deeper than they would have ever realized. But when we talk about language and we talk about our ability to communicate, it seems like everything in our civilization that is good has gotten us to this point where we can talk. Can any of you explain to me why taking something away actually adds to our group communication? We take small talk away. Small mm-hmm. mouth sounds are the mm-hmm, the huh. It's chatter for the sake of chatter. And when we deal with the silence and the human connections, it really, as as my dear and talented colleagues have said, it hits deeper and resonates more strongly than any verbal sound can be. And also, really, so much of our communication is with our bodies and our beings. Words can be very surface, Mm. 
as elegant and beautiful though they may be, but it is the body and the being that can convey so, so, so much more. Dennis? Yeah. Taking a personal take on this is I talk a lot. And so when you take that away, it creates an uncomfortableness that then allows you to grow in a much more meaningful way. And I'm always in awe of those that can communicate uh, non-verbally. I've talked to Suze about dancers and specifically, I, I love watching dancers be able to communicate something not using any vocals at all. And it moves me so much. And it puts us in a state of listening with our entire being. And I I always say this at Mm -hmm. rehearsals, we listen not only with our ears, but with our eyes. We're listening to what the body is doing and it brings up all those connections or misinterpretations Mm -hmm. and forces clarity of communications because you can't go back and say, what I mean is, (laughs) what you mean is what you're doing. (laughs) <laughs> um, Torne and I share a little bit of a background as musicians. I'd like you to speak for a moment about the idea that the rest is just as important as the rest of the musical vocabulary. That pause, we talk about singers and their phrasing, that pause, how to couch that lyric, that song, which gives so much information, and that quiet in a moment of a lyrical phrase of music makes you want to hear more. One of my favorite instrumental pieces that I consider a friend of mine is Olay by Pat Metheny. Mm. And I always say, the music never resolves. You just stop hearing it, and it continues on. So that idea of the rest or the pause or that hesitation, we've talked about, you know, pregnant silences, where suddenly you're in the presence of something that you cannot articulate, but it's there in the room and you can feel it. And Dennis Tamblyn, as a singer and someone who has sung opera of different forms, (laughs) speak on that point about how powerful is it when you don't sing? Yes. In music, I feel that it actually makes acting easier in a lot of ways because those pauses are built in to the the music and then you have to make sense of that and figuring out why that silence is there i feel that the silence in in a performing musical format like a a musical or an opera uh, can be very very powerful especially one that what we call fermata which is the pause that you can take as much time as you want and where you can decide how long the pause is that is a a very uh the liberating to, to to sink into that silence and make the audience wonder or anticipate what's going to happen or make them uncomfortable And I think what both of you have brought up is so interesting and so apparent in this play. And part of the reason it was chosen is because of the uniqueness of an audience having to engage silently. And there's great humor in this piece. There's great pathos in this piece. You'll understand and be able to relate. You'll bring your own experiences to this. But it's not your typical 
formula for a play, a <laughs> yeah. silent retreat. I know. You know, we think of dialogue, but yeah. in this case, what it is is the dialogue of silence and how does that manifest? Mm -hmm. Who maintains it? What are the characteristics? How do our habits come out? How does the noise of eating a potato chip mm -hmm. inform a character? Mm -hmm. So everything becomes magnified and it really is the uh, perfect example of how invisible theater got its name. Mm -hmm. That invisible energy that flows between performers and an audience that makes the magic of theater and this mm -hmm definitely creates that kind of magic. So Torinay Wolf, tell me how your role in this play is a little bit different than say what the other actors, including Dennis, are portraying. Well, I play the teacher and I am never seen. I am a voice that echoes. So I had to con figure out how to convey, you know, all of the rich texture of a character only by my voice and have a relationship with these people where I'm never, I'm, I'm never among them, really. Well, quickly, does the teacher have insight into these people's inner worlds and dialogue and backstories? Mm, I believe so, yes. Yeah, yeah you think so? Mm -hmm. Susan, what would you say about that? I would say uh, some insights. Some. She's been doing this a long time. Indeed. And she's, I wouldn't say jaded, but somewhat on auto. But her teachings resonate to some people and to other people who are forced to come to the retreat. <laughs> It doesn't resonate at all. So there's really something for everyone. Everyone identify with a little bit of each character in this new age and our desire to find connection. And I think that's the joy of, uh, of the play and this amazing uh, playwright, Bess Wall, mm -hmm. has done an incredible job. And it's, it's like something you'll never see unless you go to a silent unless retreat. Unless you go to a silent <laughs> retreat. My guests were director Susan Clausen and performers Toe Renee Wolf and Dennis Tamblin. Small Mouth Sounds runs April 19th through the 30th at the Invisible Theater main stage. There's a link for information on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. The world of silent retreats is a familiar one to author Susan Cummins Miller, and her decision to spend time at these places as part of her creative process is something she's written about before. I talked with Cummins Miller almost exactly one year ago about the publication of Making Silent Stones Sing. That's a blend of science, poetry, and her unique insight into the places where these things connect. The Writer Retreats only in silence can I regain the precious sense of words, the weighty value of each syllable, the sacredness of spoken thought. Only in stillness will I hear the chukka of anxious quail, the arrogant whistle of curve-billed thrasher, the sigh of breezes currying dust from new-laid granite gravel, the scratch of a desert whiptail's toes 
on rhyolite cobbles that border the path outside my hermitage. Only in stillness will I hear the saguaro drawing in upon itself as first light stains the waiting sky above the Rincon Mountains. Only in silence, only in stillness, can I hear my heart's percussion, the paradiddle urging me down the path that appears now between the choya and the prickly pear. Susan Cummins Miller read from her collection Making Silent Stones Sing. Her latest book of poems is Deciphering the Desert, available from Finish Line Press. The story of how I found out about New York-based performer Nathaniel Moran is a strange coincidence, and it happened about a month ago on what would have been Marcel Marceau's 100th birthday. Just as I was looking for another interview with an artist who works in silence, he and I made contact. Fifteen years ago, Moran was a homeless veteran struggling with addiction. Today, he's best known as Nate the Mime, an identity that he created to explore wordless performance, usually in connection with familiar music, using the tap and jazz dance experience that he gained as a child, long before his military career. You know, um, it gets across. You know, people talk a lot and sing and do everything. But when you silent, sometimes it catches the eye. Cause they, first of all, people want to know why you silent, and then if you tell them a story why you silent, it makes the people mind, and it makes them think, it makes them aware, um, it makes them take themselves to that journey that you take them. Especially when I do my mind, you know, people can visualize without me speaking, and take themselves maybe even if I'm walking in the park, they can put themselves in that park. You know, um, mm. it gives a person bring themselves <laughs> another person to go into another journey on their own and learn more about themselves too, as well as what they're trying to capture from my performances. Yeah, I think what you just said is really key. You said if I go on a walk in the park, then I can take them to the park instead of you having to bring everything to them in terms of props and scenery and shrubbery and, you know, everything. Instead, you're inviting them to join you in that park of the imagination. Yes. For people who haven't seen your performances, can you tell them, Nate, how important music is to what you do? Music, how they say back in the day, or say music, Sue's a savage beast. You know, you heard of that old saying. And, sure. And music is the key. A person can have a bad day and the right song come on. And before you know it, <laughs> that song helped him get through that day. When I do my mind, you know, that's what I'm trying to bring that music to life so you can enjoy it plus visualize it at the same time, you know, and then even put your two cents in it while I'm doing it. I've been growing up all my life with that music from the old school, from the 78s and the 33s, and I'm telling my age now. My grandma had 13 kids, so we, they was into that music, so I grew up with that music all my life. So when I got into doing mine, it's like I can tell a story of the songs now. You know, um, I did tap, I did jazz, I did other dances. But when I got into this mime, it helps me 
really get into the lyrics. It helped me really get into the music. It helped me really feel the tweeters and, and the violins and, and the words and so I can help bring it across the way I want to bring it. I think you hit upon an important note there that the vibe of music that you're dancing to is from you coming of age. And that's the sweetest music to anyone's ears is the music they grew up to. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, I can... I remember my, my mama, she used to hear that song, Chain, 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 and she's singing like crazy. And my grandmother was into Brooke Bennett, you know, and this, his voice <laughs> and Lou Ross. And, you know, I'm telling my age, bro, I'm telling my age. <laughs> but my first time I did mime, I did it off of Usher, uh, Dago My Baby. And I was doing a competition for the National Veteran Creative Arts Festival. I wanted to bring the song. Instead of me just dancing off the song, I wanted to bring the song to life. I wanted to interpret. Everybody had that moment when they saw their girlfriend or their friend, and when they saw them, their heart beat, and they, they can't wait. They want to tell the world, that's my girl, that's my man, you know, vice versa. And So that's what I got for that song, and I, and I didn't really just want to dance to it. I wanted to bring it to life. I wanted to tell that story. I wanted to, that person to remember when she first saw that friend, that, that, that love, that, that heart. and I wanted to take that journey with him. How much of what you do is choreographed ahead of time? And how much room do you give yourself for improv? Yeah, I choreograph a lot. Like an artist, I draw the picture in my brain as I listen to the song. And what I want to do with it as far as the outfits, the props, to make sure the song gets across so it can you see that visual. But I leave a little room. When I step into a song, I step in. I'm not here. And sometimes it would take me to another level when I'm just waiting. I didn't, I didn't want to do that, but it comes out and it went that way. <laughs> that's where that feeling I got. You know, Nate, as you share these positive messages with us and you tell us about your art, you went through some hard years. Yeah, I went in the service and I signed up in 78. I went in 79, active duty. And... Basic training for Gordon, Georgia, communication. Then I went to Germany from 1980 to 84. I was in Germany. And that's when I was with NATO, top secret clearance. Honestly, I'm glad I went to the military. You know, I regret not one bit of it because it, it took me through journeys and I met so many powerful and amazing people. You know, um, you know growing up in Virginia down south, at my age, you know, you saw a lot of everything, the prejudice and every stuff. And the military taught me unity. It taught me we all are one. All I saw was green. We didn't see nationality. We didn't see color skin. We didn't see that. We just saw we are a team, and that was it. And that's where I, it helped me to this day. You know, that's where I still keep my unity, and I still got respect for each and everyone, no matter who you are. That was Nathaniel Moran, also known as Nate the Mime. You can find video of him in action on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.